0: Veni, veni, venias and welcome to our podcast. Veni, 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 veni veni, 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 veni Good evening and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the ask portion of our program and joining me tonight is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello. So, uh how's it going? Creeping up on Bastille Day all of a sudden. What? Oh my gosh, it is. Wow. That's amazing. That means July's almost half over. What? Yeah. No. What happened? I don't know. I don't know. I'm kind of happy because we've been having really hot weather and yes. the only way out is through right. or something. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> but I was also, when I was out on the lake uh, kayaking today and thinking, you know, six months from now, this is going to be a field of ice huts. That's true um Which is awesome. but probably less than 6 months but definitely 6 months right. from now yeah yes but um
1: it is kind of funny yeah. um yeah i mean it obviously gets incredibly hot here as well but i don't know i feel like all the stuff about you know are we going back is school reopening um, oh boy the further we stay away from all those questions the better so the longer july <laughs> the longer july lasts uh the better things are in some ways
0: wash your hands everybody yes <laughs> i don't have any other better solution <laughs> nope wear masks, mask wear hands. a mask this is what they had hands. to do 102
1: years ago with the flu yeah and we're lucky they knew that then i mean the plague yeah they knew about quarantine you know they've known about mm-hmm. quarantining for a very long time but the idea of hand-washing.
0: Yeah. They had some ideas, like the, the those Plague Doctor masks. Yes. Um, but I think they, they stuffed the beaks with flowers because it was like... They
1: thought it was the smell, yeah.
0: Yeah, the smell. We
1: talked about that in maybe our first or second episode. Second episode?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think so.
1: Um But the, bad. the idea of contagion, yes.
0: <laughs> they know. do look real cool, though. I
1: know. Well, and they... In some ways, they're sort of right. There is something traveling mm-hmm. through the air that's getting to you. <laughs> yeah. um, not with the plague, of course, where it wasn't necessarily, you know, was not usually transmitted through the air, but obviously diseases can be. Um, yeah. But yes, the reason why masks worked isn't what they thought it was. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it is funny how they were sort of right. that contagion can come to you through the air. Tiny steps
0: yeah. on the way to figuring out you know, germ theory. Oh,
1: absolutely.
0: Yeah. We're working on it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, we've done some very good, you know, <laughs> very good work. Yeah. I mean, um, polio took six years for the vaccine, right? Mm-hmm. And they think that, um, I mean, the sort of hope is that this will take a year, a year and a half. Yeah. Which, you know, it may or may not,
0: but still Tossing even... our fingers. Yeah,
1: the idea that that would be possible is incredible. Yeah,
0: yeah, it right. really is like a Manhattan Project type effort at yeah. this point. And, uh, oh, well, we'll see what happens with yes the uh, closure of the bars and if somebody is going to sue Dane County about that. I don't know. But, right. To avoid diving too deeply into Wisconsin politics, yes. which are both infuriating and incredibly boring to non Wisconsiners. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's talk about
1: decolonization yes. because. Which is, of course, one of the things that hopefully
0: has come out of all this, right? Yes, that people will start thinking about how to better decolonize their um their curricula and their lives. Honestly, their their intellectual um modalities, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny, I was I was thinking about I'm just getting ready to post the first decolonization episode as we're right. Um having this conversation. I was like thinking about how to write the promo and I started to think like Are you interested in racism? (laughs) And I was like, maybe there would be a better way. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) a better way to. You don't want uh, all the people who answer yes to that question. You're like that sounded better in my head, right? No, maybe are you interested Uh, in (laughs) anti-racism? Yeah, anti-racism. Come see what decolonization has to offer. Yes. All right. So we've talked about the Americas, and we talked about Africa last time. Yes. Let's see. We talked about Africa more than just a backdrop for white people looking pensive in movies. Right. More than just gazelles. Yes.
1: Can I just say, and I think the day, maybe that same night or maybe the next day or something, Mm -hmm. I was up super late doing whatever, because this is how I work. It's super late. And there was a CSI Miami rerun on. (laughs) Um, And it was, oh my God. It was a mishmash of like all of the things. Maybe not quite all of them, but half of the things that are tropes that we had talked about. So basically, you know, whatever is behind it, but there's sort of this diamond smuggling going on and they turn out to be blood diamonds that are being smuggled in. And (laughs) there's also child trafficking because children have also been smuggled in from Africa to essentially be enslaved by the diamond people in Florida who are forcing them to cut diamonds and stuff. <laughs> yes and the woman was yes. dutch and we talk about the dutch east indies and the whole yes there. yes and king leopold of course and so it was like basically everything we talked about in one episode right all of the stereotypes of why and how africa is sort of used in sort of <laughs> yep. white narratives right and i was like oh my gosh are. this is all of the things what how impressed, usually you say, you know, you use one at a time. I thought that was kind of the rule of like, yeah. writing for yeah. television because you got to save your other tropes for other episodes. Mm-hmm. Nope, they packed them all into totally. one episode.
0: Just chuck all our cards in. Yes. Going all in <laughs> yes. on Africa stereotypes. Yes.
1: So, um, very impressive. Nice. You know, well course- done, CSI Miami. Yes. I mean, the show's got, oh my gosh, it's got to be 10 years <laughs> yeah. old, right? But, um, but yeah, there it was. And I was like, oh, yeah, well, exactly
0: what we talked about. Yes. So this that is one cool. of the things we talked about. All right. <laughs> um, and we we talked a little bit about the Crusader Bible. Yes. And Ethiopia yes. as an early repository of both Judaism and Christianity. Yes.
1: Yeah. A very, very early Christian country. Um, basically at the same time Europe was becoming Christian yeah and yet the extent to which we really really think of christian as a christianity is a white religion even though of course it started the middle east and there are lots of people who have gone back to that to point out that it is not originally a white religion but Mm -hmm. um, even given when you look at the spread of the religion it didn't spread solely to europe right And there's something very important about that that um, parts of africa like ethiopia have just as strong a claim to christianity
0: okay so today I think we're gonna talk about Asia. Um and we're gonna talk about borders and maps. Yes. Which is really cool. Um maybe we'll even talk about <laughs> uh d- Sir Archibald Mapsalot the Third. Yes.
1: Oh yes, I have please to
0: throw him in there. Yes. yes. Everyone must okay. Google this daily sh- old daily <laughs> show episode with we'll, Jon We'll put a clip uh in the notes, we'll put a link yes. in the notes, but it's definitely worth watching. Yes. If you want to get a sort of comedian's eye view of what exactly we're talking about. Yes. Yes. Brilliant. Um, so Asia, interesting place in that, um, colonized, it's big. Let me start by saying that yes. Asia is really big and it feels really weird to me to be like Asia. Instead of South Asia or Southeast Asia or right. East Asia, like even saying East Asia, you're already talking about China, Korea, both Koreas, right. Japan, arguably kind of Mongolia. Nobody really talks Possibly. about them. Yeah.
1: Well, I don't know. Where is Mongolia? Eurasia? I don't know.
0: Yeah, it, I mean, it gets lumped <laughs> in with Central Asia. Okay, there you go. Um, linguistically, I know they have a. Language with two tones, okay. um, And they have like their own script, and then they have a Soviet script, Mm -hmm. um, which they don't really use anymore. Right. (laughs) Mongolian (laughs) is the one that looks like knives falling out of the sky. Yes. If you see a vertical script and it looks kind of Asian and like kind of knifey, that's Mongolian. Awesome. It's great. Um, I I have never learned how to read it, but it it looks so cool. Um. Yes. But like so already if you're talking about I know. (laughs) This was my first thought when I when I got Renminbi B when I arrived in China. Ah. I was like, oh what's that like because they have like minority languages languages. on the bills. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, what's that? That's really neat. Yep. Um but like already if you say East Asia, you're talking about a billion people. Yes. More than a billion people. So it feels weird to be like let's (laughs) talk about Asia. Right. Um But different parts of it have been invaded um, by different people at different times. And if you're really interested in the history of Southeast Asia, um, Anthony Reed is the name that I'll give you since he wrote a couple of different books about the early, early history. Um, Asia can be a difficult place to research more so than like Germany or something. Because of different colon, you know, not just like kingdoms changing hands, which happens all the time, but like when you get, you know, the British coming in and they want to suppress something that was n- done beforehand. That like, you know, right. establish themselves as rulers, or in some places like in Cambodia, which we'll talk about in a minute. You you know, you have the Khmer Rouge, right. who we're very devoted in certain ways to breaking with previous history. Yes. You get lots of
1: erasure basically.
0: Yeah, lots of erasure. Yeah. And even within a kingdom, you know, you might if a if you change religion, you might change the way that your temples are, mm-hmm. you know, like to try to erase gods that you previously worshiped well, because course. they're no longer right, right. the good gods. Um and there's also the problem of like les majest laws. And things like that. So that suppose that you are a researcher in Burma or Myanmar. Um, right. If you publish certain things, you might not be totally welcome to go back to that country anymore. Right. Um This happens in Thailand, too. Um They have very, very strict laws about what you can say or not say about the king. Yes. Kind of notoriously. Yeah. So, like, if you're gonna write a book like The King Never Smiles, um, which was a book about the previous king, Bumibol, and his, uh, elder brother, and specifically his elder brother's death, which is a very contentious moment in Thai history, you don't write it and publish it until you're ready to never go back to Thailand. Right. <laughs> because. Yes. Uh, jails in general, not a place you want to be. Right. Thai, Prisons definitely not a place you want right. to be at all. I do feel like Thai um, prisons
1: are among the things that show up in American movies as bad yeah. places, right? Which of course yeah. can be is, you know, stereotypical in many ways. Yeah. But I'm gonna say I picked up ways also. I picked
0: up a book. I was staying at like a youth hostel or something where people had been like leaving books, take a book. Mm -hmm. So I picked one up that was, like, some guy's account of, like, how I got thrown in Thai prison for smuggling drugs. And, like, it (laughs) begins with this guy in a cell next to him screaming in the dark because his, like, his neck had some sort of bug that in the subcutaneous. Anyway, it was disgusting. I put the book down. I didn't read anymore. And I swore I would never go to a Thai prison. (laughs) And if he made all of that up, good job, dude. Right. Like, it really stuck with me. <laughs> awesome. But um don't yes. don't go to prison. Right. Be good, don't smuggle drugs and right. watch what you say about the king. Right. I guess that would be my advice. Right. <laughs> yes.
1: I mean, it is one of those interesting things though because to be f- right, the ways in which prisons are kind of awful everywhere, right? Um mm-hmm. so it might be more physically awful in certain ways if you think of, you know, the bugs that exist in Thailand that may not exist in the US. Yeah. Really big ones, you know. Then we have, you know, solitary confinement for twenty years of your life. That will probably drive. Yeah, we
0: have. We have a lot more people in jail too. We have way more people um, in in a per capita sense than anyone else. There was this one. Yeah. There was a QI clip where they talk about that, and everybody just suddenly sits there and like is like very somber and it's like, "Really? Yep. America? Yep. Like, yep. Home of the free, land of the brave, Mm -hmm. (laughs) etc. Land of the free, home of the brave. Yes." Yeah. Yep. So so we're messed up. Be careful. Yeah. But I'm gonna not say anything mean about anybody's royalty. Right. So uh, sure. if travel ever happens again, right, <laughs> I can I can go back to Bangkok. Yes. But um. Oh. So yeah. I, <clears throat> anyway, my background mostly in Thai, uh, Thailand, and mostly in a much later period than we talk about. Right. Like I studied Wachirawut, who was king you know, 1900s, World War I era type. Um, I'm, I'm sort of a late Victorian, early Edwardian type of situation. Right. But, um, Angkor Wat, and I'm going to apologize in advance because I don't speak Khmer. I'm probably going to mispronounce everything. Um, but so Angkor Wat built similar in time to Notre Dame. Uh, and so I thought it was a great place for us to talk about um, both the ways in which colonialism can be like weirdly insidious in the modern world. And also just talk about how cool <laughs> Angkor Wat is because it's really neat. Okay. So I'm going to start with the disclaimer that Angkor Wat is like one specific temple, um, which I'll talk about in a second. And I'm going to be very lazy and use it to sort of refer to this entire area of temples and other types of ruins of um, the sort of the Khmer Empire um, from a time they date from like the 9th century to the 15th century. And they're all in the Siem Reap area. Um, y- now you could call them the Angkor Archaeological Park. That's the actual name of the UNESCO heritage site. But, okay. So, the French in Cambodia and Angkor Wat. um should start by saying that the Khmer Empire was founded by Jayavarman II around 802 CE. And, uh... People built big temples uh, because power was conceived as sort of a a concrete, homogeneous feature of the spiritual world that could be accumulated and concentrated by putting up temples and other types of monuments. Angkor Wat was built in the Hindu tradition as a representation of Mount Meru, which is where Hindu gods live traditionally. Um, It also has, like, some concentric galleries, which are a feature of later Angkor architecture and an east-west orientation so that the sun comes up in, you know, cool places on the solstice and stuff like that. Um, There's a lot of people who who do research on this. Um, A lot of what I'm talking about about the French, by the way, comes from the book Cambodge by Penny Edwards, um, which is a pretty good book and uh talks a lot about the f- the french in indochina but specifically in uh in cambodia so um in a, you know at the time that angkor wat was put up and for a little while afterward uh the the khmer empire was hindu and then for a while it was buddhist and they went back and like chiseled all the faces off of the, the Hindu gods and stuff. Right. And then they were Hindu again. Yes. And they chucked out the Buddhas and they right. brought back like Shiva Lingas and whatever. Mm-hmm. And eventually they settled on being Buddhism, um, which is, you know, sort of what people are today. I mean, today you get much more of a mix of religions, obviously. Um, but Buddhism, uh, specifically Theravada Buddhism, is sort of what would what would have been going on at the time that our story begins. I just want to also say for those who think it weird that a place would go back and forth from one religion
1: to another, we should all remember England going yes. back and forth from <laughs> Catholic to Protestant to Catholic to Protestant, you know, yeah, around the time you know. of Henry VIII, and then, of course, Mary, sadly, also yep. known as Bloody Mary, and then, of course, Bloody Queen Elizabeth, Mary.
0: right, yeah. So... Yeah. It's not like this You gotta keep happen. your options open. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you wanna try things out, yes. see if you And the English did
1: the same thing. Of course, they whitewashed all the saints yeah. off the walls. And sometimes when you tear down those walls to restore a church or I something, you find the originals behind there, but sometimes you can't. Um, yeah. And the French, of course, every time they had a revolution, they tossed out all their saints and broke all their stuff. And, <laughs> you know, sometimes they got it back and sometimes they destroyed it. So it's not there anymore.
0: Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, good point. So, um, let's see. Around 1860, this guy Henri Mouhot Ma- uh was led to the temple complex at Siem Rape. Um he'd hired some locals to lead him there. It was not he discovered it, yeah. but it wasn't like it was lost, right? Like Right. <laughs> there were there were monks still at these temples doing their Thing, yes he discovered know, it the um, way columbus discovered america
1: yes he yes. Columbus it this is a video which is yes.
0: also he put really did
1: college humor yes. has a whole video about columbusing things yes <laughs> it's yeah. how white people discover stuff that was already known to other people yes yeah
0: All right. so he and in fact things. i think there had even been <laughs> a previous missionary who came to the area who had like sort of written about it but he d- dismissed the temples as being like oh you know, these old pagan god, right. you know, overgrown with jungle, whatever. Um, ah, so so nobody paid any Columbus. attention. Okay, Yeah. He didn't even Columbus it. But he was like... <laughs> He's secondary. <laughs> he was Columbus. the one... Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, if the first guy was Leif Erikson... Right. Then you're right. He did Columbus it. Yeah. There you go. So he stumbled magically upon these right. magnificent temples. Yes. Falling into ruin in the middle of the jungle. Yes. And he drew some pictures, um, and he wrote down in his journal uh, what he saw, and this is an important point, right? Like, if you find something, write it down. Yes. That's how you get credit, yep. I guess. Oh, 100%. Um,
1: yeah. Or you stick a flag
0: there or something, but yes. <laughs> yeah. It's important to note, at this point, Siam Reap was part of Siam, okay. which is what we would now call Thailand. Yes. Um, It wasn't a French colony. <laughs> it wasn't anybody's colony. Right. It was... Themselves, right? right? And the Siamese thought that the temples were really cool. And they had also done like some work kind of intellectually figuring out ways that they might be connected to Siamese culture. Mm-hmm. Both Siamese and uh, Burmese monarchs were really into the Angkor statuary because they felt like it could, as I said, contain power. Of mm-hmm. the uh, the Khmer kings, so they were really interested in forging intellectual le- links to this kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, the The people who lived there didn't necessarily see the kingdom as having been built by anyone, mm-hmm. or they didn't necessarily see it as connected to the people who were living in modern day Cambodia. Sure. Right? They sort of saw it as this. Thing, right, you know, sort of that time, before. immemorial, legend, yeah. yeah. Um, but, so the, this guy, Mohu, sent his journals back to France before he died of malaria in Laos. Yes, um, as one does. <laughs> and they published them. Um, this was right at a time when this idea of Tour du Monde was becoming oh, yes. popular. So, like, people were really interested in this. One interesting point is that he, he was a naturalist and he included the monks in the drawings, ah. possibly as a way of showing scale of, of the buildings Ooh, and stuff like it's that. still
1: different but from something we talked about last time with the Americas and many things, where usually mm-hmm.
0: anyone local gets completely erased from the landscape. Right. Well, this is the point, right? When they published the drawings, they had them redone <gasps> by professional drawing yep. people, etchers, I guess. Yes. And they left out the people. There you go. So they totally turned around and did that. Yep. Um, they picturesque it. Yes. <laughs> and so there were people, obviously, Khmer people living in Cambodia. And the French sort of saw them as, I guess, a decayed version of this once great empire. Hmm. Um, I cannot figure out why the French saw them as decayed or dying out or something except that maybe they weren't building really big temples anymore well i
1: think though that um, that's like the they way were just normal
0: people well no yeah. but
1: right if you look at if you compare it for example again to the americas right that these are the vestiges right of the people who used to be here yeah right yeah if they have to be the vestiges because that allows you to come in and take over <laughs> mm-hmm. right yeah um that they, they needed the, the vestiges, french then yes then yes you have less of a claim to coming in and taking over. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So Edwards writes, ravaged by tropical decay and neglect, Mohu's Angkor entered l'imaginaire Francais as an emblem of the fate awaiting empires in decline. The temples epitomized the danger of decadence and symbolized France's moral destiny in Indochina. Oh, yes, of course. So 1863, um was basically when Cambodia becomes the French-Cambodian protectorate or, you know, the, the protectorate period, I guess they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and France decided they were sort of going to forge these intellectual links between the existing Khmer people and the temples at Angkor Wat. Mm. And you see this, like, since 1863, Angkor has actually been on all the Cambodian flags including ah. the flags of the Khmer Rouge. Uh-huh. Um, so in some ways, like, it really did get used as this symbol of governmental legitimacy, mm-hmm. I think. The only flag that is an exception, if you look through, is, like, during the, I want to say the early 90s, um, there was a period when Cambodia was under the control of the UN because of the government sort of falling apart in the wake of the mm-hmm. Khmer Rouge. Um, and so their flag just had, like, a picture of Cambodia on it, which is very boring. But they're the yes. UN, so what do you want? Right. Um, yeah, so this raises, like, a lot of really interesting questions um, for me. Because, so you have temples that were built over several hundred years, different gods, uh, repurposed, you know, used for Different things, parts are still in use. Mm-hmm. So, like, how do you restore it, right? Because that's, even today, right. like, a big focus, right? Like, when you say you restored the temple, what are you even talking about if it's been used right. <laughs> for 600 years for two different religions? Right. Um, so, colonial intervention would subsume this municipali- multiplicity of meanings into a homogenizing national narrative, as described in 1951 by director Louis Mallert of the oh. hmm. École Francaise de Extrême-Orient. Yes. Uh, restore, they uh, restored a chronology, disengaged the past from its legend, and recovered dynastic lines, giving a new éclat to great reigns like those of Jayavarman II and Jayavarman VII. Uh, by inserting... Angkor, into a sliding scale of time, grooming, landscaping, restoring, and depicting the ruins in a way that privileged European aesthetic standards, and authenticating it as a ledger of national history, the Protectorate would first assert and then sublimate Angkor's status as a national monument. This totalizing secular frame of reference would radically alter Cambodian relations to and perceptions of the temple complex. Paradoxically, this rupture with past practice was brought about by French attempts to establish a continuity between Cambodge and its Angkorian past through historiography, archaeology, and museology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, I don't want to also suggest that this is a lie, right? That, like, I cannot come back and be like, the Fr- Cambodian national treasure is just totally something the French made up. But it is, like, really a weird thing that that nationalism is like a story that you learn mm-hmm. and a lot of this story was kind of written by the French oh I should add the French negotiated Siam giving it to Cambodia right? Um, during this whole period so like the literal restoration of the temples both in terms of like the land ownership and the restoration of the temples mm-hmm. was very French. And so that's like, that says a lot to me about like where history can be in Southeast Asia right now. Mm-hmm. That you have a lot of threads that are hard to unpick, I think. Um, it's not hard to find similar, um, problems if you look <laughs> anywhere else in, uh, in Southeast Asia
1: mm mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. there is something very interesting, also something that happens a lot right that and it doesn't have to be an a colonial government that does this, you know mm-hmm. um anyone can do this, but um the idea of first of all that Angkor Wat was a lived place, right so as you said, hundreds yeah. of years, a couple different religions still in use, right yeah, um, but a lived place isn't necessarily a symbol in the same way, right? Um, Mm -hmm. There are sort of exceptions, um, but not exactly. So you might argue, for example, that New York is incredibly symbolic for the US, you know, or Washington DC, and that those are, and they aren't right. Yeah. They contain symbols, the Statue of Liberty, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Wall Street, (laughs) the washington monument the capitol building yeah but they themselves there are things that are symbolic about them but also they're lived cities right and there's something about that that then means that they are constantly changing and although of course they make sort of important targets right for a war or something similar um there's something a little bit different right um And so the idea of looking for something symbolic that you can connect to an important past, right? Rome is a great example. It's a lived city. Yes. It contains a lot of icons, right? So the fascists use things like the Colosseum, right? And by fascists, I mean Mussolini. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you take these symbols, right? And you link them to your power, right? But. A symbol that is used in that way, that is used to sort of create a legacy of power, that symbol has to be stationary. It mm-hmm. cannot be lived. It cannot be moving. It cannot be changing. There's also an extent to which it cannot be acknowledged to have changed. Right? So you find something right. like Anchor Watt, which, of course, was consistently changing, was still being used, was still lived in place. You have to, first of all, arrest it in time. So you got to get rid of the people. you got to make
0: it. Chose- choose this one moment. Yes, yeah. yeah. so you have to freeze choose frame. the
1: moment when you're going to freeze it. And then you'll be like, mm-hmm. that is the moment to which we restore it. You decide, for whatever political reasons of the modern day, that that is the moment that is somehow most potent politically, or whatever it is you're mm-hmm. looking for. Probably political, but maybe religious power. And that's what you take, right? And there is something very interesting about the ways in which... Right, we talked a lot about icons <laughs> in a previous episode before we actually got to decolonization. It was our last one right before decolonization. Yeah. Um, and the way that those are, right, that an icon can be created, right, sort of arrested, created, claimed. Um, they are very, very powerful. But of course, you're not, you're not ever really thinking about the historical value of the thing itself, Mm -hmm. Right. The goal isn't really to protect an ancient site. Right. Um, it's to use it. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think that's, (laughs) Anchor Watt's a fantastic example, because of course, in some ways, then it continues to be used in that way. Right. It's why the Khmer Rouge Mm -hmm. call themselves the Khmer Rouge.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think one of their, um, pseudonyms before they sort of unveiled themselves, like, uh pol pot went by like the original khmer mm. there you go so yeah yeah they really despite rejecting a lot of history in the sense of like the french i don't know you'd call it urbanization mm-hmm. anything anything related to modernity um they they clung on very hard to like this idea of a past, a agrarian um past that was more I don't know, it's a very idealized thing, mm-hmm. right? But being a serf and right. a farmer and whatever, I mean, like in a barter economy is not cool. Yeah. But yeah.
1: I like, you know, George Washington had this
0: not just George Washington, but the founders,
1: many of them many of the Southern founders had this vision of americans as a land of sort of gentlemen farmers <laughs> yeah ah uh, which you know is was never true and of course also involved slavery
0: which yeah is we know who's really doing the planting yes
1: as a famous musician yeah. says. Yep. <laughs> yes um yeah but that sort of idea yeah that there's something very um specific about that yeah yeah um somehow yes it's this ideal you know and of course for us you could say it's specifically judeo-christian right the garden of eden (laughs) the idea of Mm -hmm. adam you know he dug in the earth and grew his own food or whatever um except he didn't really have to he lived in a garden but anyway um but that's sort of ideal right uh but of course lots of religions have this ideal sort of relationship with the earth right of
0: harmony and people and Whatever, all living together, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, in peace. We're I mean, still in modern ecology, like we're still hoping to find something like that, right? Like yes. every time we write a letter to the editor about why you should get an electric car or right. reduce your carbon footprint, that's that's what you're hoping, right? That you desperately, you know, right.
1: Well, I think that at this point we're
0: also maybe just,
1: you know looking for ways not to completely destroy yeah.
0: what we've got. <laughs> That's you know. true. But yeah, but, um, and it is, there's a certain, I mean, the earth is a pretty amazing Can we figure out place. a way, right, can we figure out a way to balance our lifestyle wants with what the earth can support? Right. And find any sort of harmony there. Yes. These are the questions. Yeah. Um. I do not have an answer. Uh, but anyway, that's Cambodia. Yes.
1: I want to give a shout out to um, Lauren Yee's play, Cambodian Rock Band, just because... So I'm going to ask, did they have Dengue Fever perform for that? No, the
0: music is all from Dengue Fever, but the cast performs it. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay, by the way, Dengue Fever, really good band. A lot of their stuff is on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It's kind of psychedelic. Yes. It's a lot of fun.
1: Um, And Cambodian Rock Band, it's a great play. Everyone should read it. Or see it if you get a chance. Um, it was really written for the guy who's played the main role, I think, in most, maybe all productions, who is, I believe, Cambodian. And, um... You know, escaped to the U.S., basically. Um... Or his, his parents did. And, um, it's about... It goes back and forth in time. So, modern day, this reporter who's from the U.S., but her dad was Cambodian, escaped to the U.S. Um... She went back to Cambodia to sort of investigate, right, the Khmer Rouge. And it goes back and forth between her today doing that um and the past, right? Um And one of the things we find out is that her dad, before he managed to escape, um, was in a rock band. And that is, of course, the... Hmm cambodian rock band of the time and And as it happens they play 10k fever's music um so you know there's that um yeah but yeah so that's the um the sort of premise and it's one of the things that's interesting about it for our purposes is definitely the ways in which it is a reminder because it's very sort of western rock in a lot of ways they're Mm -hmm. with definite cambodian elements of course right but it is this sort of um Harmonizing. I think you actually used this word at some point a few minutes ago. <laughs> and I thought of yes. it. Um it is a sort of harmonizing of these cultures, right? Um and he does want to sort of escape to the US. Um and you know, things happen in the play. His daughter never knew that he was interested in music. Various things. Um mm-hmm. but anyway, so this past, right? And so there's this um the contrast right between the sort of modern western rock band and what's sort of happening to the country right um and it's a it's a wonderful play i teach it uh it was recently done at signature theater new york um i don't know if they managed to get all their performances they were extended a few times and i don't know if they managed to get in their final Ooh. performances before the but they'd already <laughs> been extended a few times so
0: yeah okay um,
1: so they they may have finished right before the quarantine, or maybe they were extended into it. But um, anyway, but it was done uh, one of the earlier, slightly earlier, maybe early productions,
0: was done at OSF, Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Um, okay, I think I might have that might have been when I heard about it. It was when it was being done at, at Oregon Shakespeare. Quite
1: possibly, yeah. Um, it's been done at La Jolla Victory Gardens in Chicago. Yeah. And it's... It's a lot of fun, but it does sort of talk about um, this same sort of uh, issue. Uh, and one character mm-hmm. who serves as sort of the narrator <laughs> is actually a historical character. He's a real figure from the regime. Uh, and hmm. he's he's a sort of... Um, this is a Western Eurocentric comparison, but just for purposes for our listeners to get an idea. Uh, he's a little like Richard the <laughs> third, which is to say, uh-huh. uh, he is a very, he's definitely not the hero in the way Richard the third is, of course, the title character of that play. Um, and obviously the father is the hero, right? But he is that sort of evil, but very charming narrator we're sort of on his side until maybe sort of the end, but we're also definitely not because we know he's evil. And if we read the papers in, you know, whatever times he was on trial and such, um, which is, well, I guess probably a decade ago now, but, um, you know, we would recognize his name as having been this guy who was convicted of this stuff, right? (laughs) So, yeah. so there's this interesting, that sort of twist to it as well, right? That he's he's the only sort of um, historical character in it.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, that might definitely be worth looking into. I'd like to read that. Yes,
1: it's quite fun. I'm pretty sure American Theater published it.
0: Um, okay.
1: Which can be found online. American Theater Magazine. You know, in your libraries. Except right now, probably via your <laughs> library's internet services. <laughs> yes. Et cetera. Yeah.
0: Um. We'll see what we can do yes
1: um but something else you were saying so the whole idea you talked about <laughs> okay first of all let's go with names right speaking of names yeah. so Siam of course Thailand and Burma Myanmar right um and the ways in which a lot of these names have changed um mm-hmm. sometimes because these names- are hmm?
0: sometimes sometimes these names are more contentious than others yes. um Siam would go by Siam, but also by Mung Thai, which or Pratat Thai. Mm-hmm. And so eventually they decided, I think, to go by Thailand. But I believe that depending if you're a refugee or not, you may prefer Burma versus Myanmar mm-hmm. type, of, type of thing. Yes.
1: Yeah, right. And this, of course, right, this is a huge kind of issue. Um, yeah. Sometimes... It's countries naming themselves. Sometimes they weren't allowed to name themselves. They rename themselves. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the political regime changes and the name changes, right? Um, names are yeah. just as important as gods, right? You yeah. erase the gods off the temples. The Egyptians did this too, of course, right? A new pharaoh comes in, didn't like the old one. <laughs> you start yes. scraping his face off of everything,
0: right? Yeah, one of the reasons we can't just dis- tell if there were more female pharaohs Yes, that many of them were sort of destroyed. Yes, and also they wore ceremonial beards, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. which makes it hard.
1: Right. <laughs> so we need. Right. So you have you need so much evidence to prove, yeah. that someone
0: yeah. that a certain pharaoh was
1: in fact a woman.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. You do see in in modern Vietnam, a lot of people will still use Saigon to refer to what is now Ho Chi Minh City. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Well. Yeah. yeah I mean, it kind of is. Some people. Only use it to refer to like the oldest part of the city, and then the oh. rest of it is Ho Chi Minh. Interesting, but yeah, it it's um a little bit interchangeable, which is kind of interesting. That really is. I I assume because of lingering feelings about right <laughs> the war. Sure,
1: but that's a good reminder, right? That sometimes the change might be more political than anything, right? That mm-hmm. not everyone might agree. So for Burma, I do want to, I'll give a shout out uh, Guy Delisle's Burma Chronicles. Um, He's a graphic novel cartoonist. These are all nonfiction. Um, His wife works for, I think, Doctors Without Borders.
0: Was he the one who also wrote about being in North Korea?
1: Yes. Oh my gosh. His stuff is fantastic. He writes with such a sort of objective point of view in ways that I imagine are fairly difficult. (laughs) Hmm. But yes, he's got Pyongyang. But he was in North Korea. Um, Burma Chronicles. Yeah. Um, Shenzhen. Uh, China. And most recently, Jerusalem. Um, that's not his most recent book, but that's oh. the most recent travel book. Okay. Um,
0: yeah. Which
1: is also really great. Um, it's a really good sort of take all, on all of these places that, that he's been. Yeah. Um, but the, um, most recent one, um, was translated into English as hostage. And it's the true story of a Doctors Without Borders administrator, um, who's kidnapped, ah, uh, somewhere in the Caucasus, you say, in oh. 1997. Um, and, yeah, it's his true story, basically. Um, wow. Yeah. So, It's a similar type of book, but it's not about him, right? It's about somebody else. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also really, really well done. Um, Yeah. But they're sort of wonderful takes on very difficult places. And he's very attuned to the issues, right? Yeah. Um, That are going on in all of these places. Um, But naming, of course, is a big one. We've talked about names, right? Who has the right to name things and the symbolism of names? What do they mean? Mm -hmm. Um, So obviously the names of countries. Um, the other thing, the sort of borders, right? What do you get? So Angkor Wat being sort of restored to Cambodia, right? Yeah. And the assumption that it is sort of Cambodian, certainly in the sense that the people of Cambodia are maybe more directly descended from the people who built it. Right.
0: right? Um, but again. I mean, so this is an interesting question, right? Like, you think about how are you descended from people, right? Right. You Maybe you think, well, back in the 12th century, there was a woman in a village in Mariampol, and she, you know, if you picture a camera and picture her going through her day, like getting water from a well or whatever, and then somehow fast forward and there's me. But really, like, you're related to the entire village at that point, maybe. Yep. Like, you have so many ancestors. Oh, yeah. And so to the point where you can sort of say... I could be related to, I don't know, how many people in, you know, that part of Europe? Mm-hmm. How many people in, in the British Isles? Yeah. And so I feel like a lot of the ways that we determine where we come from, it's more about the story that you tell, you know? It's absolutely about the story. Like, if, if this part of Cambodia, what's now Cambodia, had been part of Thailand for, you know, 300 years or something, mm-hmm. Like the reason the reason the capital was in Phnom Penh at the point when the French invaded was that there had been a war right <laughs> previously where they lost the land. Sure. You know, it did not happen super recently. Mm-hmm. So, like it it just raises some interesting questions about um where you put borderlines. Oh, of course. Basically. Well,
1: there's some other weird things, like with all the snow melting in the Alps because of climate change um, some of the countries like, you know, Italy and Switzerland, whoever, are having to redraw some of their borders, which is yes. terrible, terrible, terrible,
0: <sighs>
1: because that should not be happening. But anyway. Um, yep. But yeah, right. So there are these issues. Um, There's so many issues. First of all, we should say for anyone, you know, if you've done Ancestry or what's the other one? 23andMe and or something. Whatever. 23andMe. There me. are a ton of these, yeah. right? Okay, so if you've done one of these and they've told you sort of where your DNA comes from. This is not based on the science of people with your DNA come from that place. This is based on the giant, giant survey section of (laughs) DNA, right? Um, It is based on the story. It's based on the fact that, you know, 1,000 people or 500,000 people who've been tested, you know, at this point, whatever it is, um... 500 of them with DNA similar to yours that say that you're probably related, right? You probably have some close relative mm-hmm. eight or 10 generations ago. <laughs> um, they all say that they came from this part of the world. So you probably also come from this part of the world. But it's why those t- sites also say things like, this can be revised. Right? Mm-hmm. And then occasionally you might get sent updates. That say things like, you know what, we have revised your results and blah, blah, blah. They haven't retested your DNA. It's because another thousand people from that part of the world have sent in results. And they're like, oops, wow, we thought you're from this part of the world. (laughs) But like, we can actually narrow it down more. Or, you know, Hmm. we think we might have been wrong. More of you is actually from this other part of the world, right? The more DNA we get from people who say they're from that part of the world, the more we see that here are the clusters, right? Um. But it absolutely depends on some level on people knowing, at least to some extent, where they're from, right? And Mm -hmm. one of the things they do, they go to those parts of the world. I mean, you know, people get tested, right? So people in Mongolia have been tested. They're like, all right, here's the DNA from the thousand people we tested in Mongolia. But who knows where these people came from, (laughs) (laughs) right? They may say that they've lived there the whole lives. Their families have always lived here. That as far as they know, no yeah. one from their family moved to the Mongolia. But 2,000 years
0: ago, who's to say?
1: They don't know right. that 2,000 I mean, years like, ago,
0: someone from their family didn't yeah. come from India. Right. They didn't. I mean, like 2,000 years ago, even more recently than that, the idea of Mongolia, you would have had, you know, step nomads. Right. Right. So it's right. like we lived in this sort of vicinity, I guess. Right. but we travel we we gallop all over on our horses yes
1: Yes. and and you (laughs) might be having children in other places and
0: you know yes all these things are happening genghis khan yeah yes
1: so um so really right humans our dna is almost entirely identical period right i mean we're like four percent different from chimpanzees or something right
0: yeah we're not even that different from like a banana right I mean,
1: (laughs) basically, (laughs) but certainly when you get to like, you know, the great apes, we're so close even to them, right? When it comes to us versus each other, the differences are minuscule. So it's only based on sort of this type of survey data. The thing is, the reason people really that it started was essentially archaeologists trying to figure out when they test mummies or remains of various kinds, where was this person from? Can we prove that this Mm -hmm. person was probably from the region? Or did this person come from somewhere else?
0: And for that, so you find have- Otzi frozen in the Alps, yes, you want to know how do you he get here? Yes. How far did he travel?
1: Exactly,
0: yes. And so you
1: start comparing his DNA to other clusters, and you're like, "Well, where's the biggest cluster of the people most like him?" <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. But the thing is that ultimately, right? The more people you test, the more you narrow it down. But it's a reminder that nationality, ethnicity, race. All these things are political, social, cultural constructions, right? Yeah. So borders um, are, of course, contentious, right? Um, governments fight over them all the time <laughs> for any number of reasons. Yeah.
0: Right? Um, and borders... There's been in the news, China China and India had a dust-up, what, like two weeks ago yes. about a particular part of the the Himalayas? So. Yep which they take very seriously. Yes. Right. Even though most of us are like, well, it's in the middle of the mountains and <laughs> right. you know, but it's <laughs> but people care. Soon. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um,
1: you know, South Korea and Japan are still fighting over some of the islands.
0: Mhm. Um, oh god. I mean, the Vietnamese and the South China Sea. Yeah. There's that China is China is um
1: Yes. I mean, some of those treaties aren't even sort of official I mean, there's not a war going on, but also there's not really a truce. Right. I mean, it's not a cold war, but it it kind of could be. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yes.
0: So. um, One of the big things I learned when I started meeting Taiwanese people that I had never thought of before is the phrase mainland China. Oh, sure. Because it implies that there's part of China that's not attached. And Taiwan goes... Hey, guys.
1: Yes. Oh, and they're getting... <laughs> we have our own government. In the moment. Yeah. Particularly well, now that people are sort of not paying attention.
0: Yeah. They have uh, very good control of COVID, though. Yes. So they got that going. Yes. <laughs>
1: um, but, right, so the sense of borders, right? They're political borders, right? This is my city-state. I govern it. Um, it could be a city-state. could be a nation-state, of course, right? They're a state is any unified political entity, right? So a city-state is what we yeah. used to have, right? Athens, Sparta were all their own city-states, right? Um, then you get nation-states. So um, ancient Egypt, right, is ultimately a nation-state. It's made up of a grouping of cities, right? So it's mm-hmm. numerous littler entities that make a bigger entity. That's how you get something like a nation-state. The U.S., of course, is a nation-state, right? So your political boundaries. Um, then you have, of course, cultural boundaries, Ethnic boundaries, religious boundaries, linguistic boundaries—right, um, all of which can be very, very different, and can mean that you have people who are arguing, right? Um, people who feel that they have a an ethnic boundary within a group, but they are maybe divided by a political boundary. This can become yes. an issue, famously.
0: This this might this is a good place to reference the uh, Sir Archibald Mapsalot. Yes, um, scene because yes, if you if you want to know about the Middle East, <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, blame
1: the British. No, watch this episode. Blame the British. Um, it's a yes. many many years ago, many many years ago. Right, John Stewart on the Daily Show with John Oliver playing Sir Archibald Mapsalot the Third. Back when they were both so young. Yes. Well,
0: younger than today. Younger than today, yes. Um.
1: <laughs> um. Yeah. And John Oliver comes on as a full-on stereotypical colonial British officer.
0: With mustache. Yes. It's amazing. Yes. Yeah.
1: Um. And he has been told that the current boundaries that the British drew in the Middle East weren't working out, and he is ready to redraw them. And this is, of course, yes. the point of the skit. <laughs> <laughs> um it's an excellent skit it does comment on history the yes. terrible history that the british have in drawing these boundaries in the middle east randomly <laughs> through whichever ethnic groups they felt like it without even paying
0: attention um yeah with john oliver being like to call me racist is to imply that i care enough about these people to hate them yes yes <laughs> Which is a fantastic line. Perfect. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes.
1: Yes. Um and and truly British. Really. Um mm-hmm. he is of course British. Yeah. I mean this is where it comes from. Um I do want to say at the same time, <laughs> um, that sort of the sense that you get, right, it the skit is hilarious, but like all good satire it actually tells a very deep and very real truth, which that mm-hmm. is in many ways what the British did to draw these boundaries was really no better than what Sir Archibald does in this skit, right? Yeah. It was no more careful. It was no more studied, <laughs> right? And it has obviously been terrible in many, 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 many ways. Yeah. Um And this actually... Now, a pro-British statement <laughs> um, <laughs> to give a shout out to the National Theater, which last week, every week, they've been doing, you know, a free theater for a week. You can see one of their productions that normally you'd have to pay movie ticket, not even movie ticket prices, like 20 bucks or something to go see it live in a movie theater. Um, or even they do rescreen screen things. Um, and if Antony and Cleopatra ever comes around, uh, people should go see that. It's got uh Sofia Sophie O'Canado as Cleopatra. It's Ooh. amazing, amazing. They're amazing. But <laughs> last week was Les Blanc by Lorraine Hansberry, which is absolutely about colonialism. It's a brilliant, um, brilliant take on colonialism. Most people know her for Raisin in the Sun, which, of course, is a brilliant, brilliant uh, play. Realism. Very much American mm-hmm. realism. Um, Les Blanc is not. It's different. It's a little more abstract, um, but equally sort of amazing. Um, and a very dark sort of commentary on colonialism. And so the National Theater did this incredible production um, a few years ago now, of course, but they just put it up online. Cool. Um, but yes, this it's, it's very much about this idea, right? In Le Blanc, of course, it is, again, the British, this time in Africa, right? But coming in and you know, drawing their boundaries, right? Um, and this sort of problem, right? Um, with the way we think about boundaries, the way we draw them, the U.S., of course, with manifest destiny. <laughs> um,
0: yes. So it's meant it 40, 49, 50, or fight. Yes. Uh, which should probably remember that better given how important it was. Well, but was <laughs> really it really going to fight Canada? I don't know. I mean, it's only
1: important in the sense of that the U.S. decided that all of this land was belonged to it, right, um and of yes. course, by that we mean to the federal government and not really Native American tribes, so extra mm-hmm. genocide, extra breaking of treaties worth noting, however, that just last week, um right after we'd sort of recorded whichever
0: episode, I mean all of the episodes we've been doing talking yeah, about all this stuff, it was, yeah, the, it was the Africa episode, Yes, I think, and then they gave Eastern Oklahoma. Yes. Well, they didn't give it. They concluded that it belonged to. Yes, it still uh, the belongs to
1: the, yes. Um, and by the way, our, uh, U.S. Poet Laureate, um, lives in Tulsa, is Native American. Um, so. Nice. I think already in the notes from a previous episode, because it had just happened, um, I put this in there, but we can, you know, relink.
0: Um. Yes, that will be but- the one that goes up in, like, tomorrow oh cool it's so it's in there <laughs> the decision yes <laughs> but um, you won't hear us commenting on this until several weeks from now so right um but uh, you know you will know that it problems. just had, that this these are
1: the episodes that happened in between right um, yeah. but that idea that um that the supreme court sort of said yes right congress never this is the funny part, right? Congress never officially took that land away. Now, of course, back when it all happened, Congress didn't feel the need to officially take the land away, right, from the Muscogee or Creek Nation. Um, but essentially, because they never made it legal, one of the reasons they didn't make it legal is, of course, because it really wasn't. Um, that land now does officially belong to the tribe, which is sort of amazing. Hmm. Um, so that's rare. right mostly the history of these things is not not that um but it does right redrawing of boundaries suddenly oklahoma's right the boundaries of the state of oklahoma have not technically changed
0: but Mm -hmm. who controls different parts of them has to some right to some extent yeah i mean this is actually related to a lot of the erasure that we talk about that if you have ever seen a map of the united states with indian reservations sort of cut out or highlighted in some way Mm -hmm. it's a very different map from the political map that you're used to yes
1: yes and so this is reminder right maps we think of maps as factual Mm -hmm. but maps are scientific yes and they are not they are created to tell us things from a specific perspective right so yeah a map Mm -hmm. of the u.s that Most maps, they show the states, but they do not show reservations. Yeah. And that's very much on purpose. You're not supposed to think of those lands as not belonging to the federal government.
0: Right? (laughs) Or as not belonging to the states. Yeah. Like a state is a... continuous yes. self-contained sort of yes. thing. Um, and
1: so there's something very, very specific about that. Um, of course, most famously, probably this is something that yeah. tends to be known these days, um, Mercator Projections um, that, mm-hmm. you know, he creates this in 1569. He's Flemish, by the way. He creates it for navigation, <laughs> right? The point is, sure. I mean, the Dutch are sailing all over, right? So he creates it for ships to navigate of course um because mm-hmm. you can see right a straight line on the map you'd be like oh i can keep going and not hit any islands right down the straight line um, the problem is that mm-hmm. if you use it in schools as we do that the further away you get from the equator the larger land appears in relation to its real size Right, so Greenland looks massive. And Northern Canada, yeah. (laughs) Yes, when they're not. But the U.S. also looks much larger in relation to countries like Africa than it actually is. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that, of course, subtly, but persistently, right, teaches students somehow that the U.S. is basically the equal of the continent of Africa, or close to it. When it absolutely yeah. isn't. If you actually look at them real size next to each other, the U.S. is tiny, comparatively.
0: hmm Right? Um yeah. So the
1: ways in which these things sort of skew our perspective,
0: right? The example I had heard was um, the uh, London Underground map. Yes. Which sort of shows you, like, where the stations are related to each other and, yes. like, related to the Thames without right. really telling you how far apart they are yep. or anything like that. Yes. So if you've ever like I was in London and there were some closures for um repairs over the Christmas holidays. Yeah. And we got out to walk to the next station that was open and it turned out that it was really far and nothing in London makes sense. They speak a language I don't understand. <laughs> And at the end of the day, we wound up in a very nice Bangladeshi restaurant and they were very happy to feed us. But um, it was touch and go there for a minute. So London, (laughs) crazy place. But also the maps. maps, Yes. It's useful. It's useful for what it tells you, which is like, how do I get from this station to that station? It's not useful if you want to apply it to the above ground. Right. Which I have to say, though, I love subway
1: maps. I love subways. Yes. I love subway maps. (laughs) They're my thing. And I love them. (laughs) I love them so much. No, they're great. They're beautiful objects. Yes. But I love them for exactly this reason. Because, you know, when I'm on a subway, my biggest concern is, how do I get from this stop to this other stop? Right? Where do I mm-hmm. switch? Where can I switch? Where can I... Right? And all the information is clearly laid out. Right? These trains are all together at this place, and these ones are together at this place. Right? Um, now, it is true if you want to know where a stop is in the above ground, you have to look at a different map. Um, yes. The exception generally being New York, <laughs> which has created a version of the London map, kind of, but superimposed it onto a map of New York. Um, A map Mm -hmm. of New York that's a little bit warped, like a Mercator projection. (laughs) Um, But nonetheless, they have done that. But I see why London hasn't, because New York is a grid, Mm -hmm. right? It's an American grid, except for (laughs) the very tip of the island, right?
0: Yeah. London is not. London is an amazing amalgamation of the ancient, ancient pre-Roman city that was once there. Uh, Like a place that has been continuously inhabited since actual time immemorial. Basically. Yep. With all the things that implies. Yes.
1: Um <laughs> yeah, then of course the Romans came along and built a lot of things and on and on. So um
0: Normans and Yeah. Yeah.
1: So you have um you definitely have a lot more stuff. You don't have straight streets, right? New York, you can have a subway line, mm-hmm. right, that just goes straight up and down like 7th Avenue and it can do that because right or 8th Avenue, right? You just have a blue yeah. line that goes straight up. Because it does, right? Yeah. It doesn't work that way <laughs> in London. Um, so, yeah. that's, but that is sort of the one exception. You know, even Chicago's map doesn't do that. DC's map doesn't do that. But, right, this is what I love about those, is that it tells me these things, right? Um, mm-hmm. But it also, right, that's the perspective you want when you're actually on the train. How do I get from here to here? Right? Um, which yeah. is actually a problem that people who visit New York sometimes will have, um It's one of the, you know, the maps are posted in every car, but you will frequently have people just looking, 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 and then they'll finally just turn around and ask someone, like, can I take this to wherever and how do I get to here, <laughs> right? Because yes. it's just harder to tell when it's on the city, right? A New York subway map isn't really made for people riding the subway. It's made for New Yorkers who are going to a part of New York that they haven't been to recently. And they just mm-hmm. need to be reminded which stop or which line or... Whatever, (laughs) right? That's really what those are for. Um, But right, this but this sense, absolutely. I love subway maps and what they sort of show you about your relationship to Mm -hmm. the subway, right? The
0: thing you're on. Um, Yeah. And so, but there's lots of other types of maps, right? Like, you can have a cosmographic type Mm -hmm. of map that talks about the relationship between where the gods are and where you are. Yes. And we talked about Dante's hell.
1: And paradise. Yes. Or purgatory.
0: Yes. yeah, Hell paradise, purgatory. Um, and yep. if you're going on a pilgrimage, for example, you mm-hmm. might want some kind of map that talks about that sort of, um, the ways that the world gets superimposed onto yes. other things. Absolutely. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so I just want to put out a quick plug that there's this guy. He's actually a really in- influential... Thai scholar. His name is Tongchai Winichakul. Um, Everybody at Madison calls him Ajan Tongchai because Thai people go by their first names. And he wrote this book called Siam Mapped where he talks about how mapping can influence the way that people go from being like, you know, I'm a member of this village or I'm a member of this tribe to like, I'm a member of this nation state. Mm -hmm. Like how... Um, the same idea that Benedict Anderson has in Imagined Communities, like the idea of how do you become a nation state? Yes. And so he actually looks at maps and stuff. Yeah. So well, they are really interested about- in, in these things, mm-hmm. it's a good place to look.
1: Yeah. Um George Washington, I think, trying to get his soldiers very early on in the revolution to swear allegiance to their country. And they all were mm-hmm. willing to swear allegiance to their states, but not anything else, right? They were citizens of yeah. like, New Jersey or New York or whatever. Um, and, of course, that's something that carried on all the way to um, the Civil War, which we talked about this last time. I can't remember if this was also MiG's um, in Arlington Cemetery. It might have been, um, where he was asked if everyone should be buried by state, and he said no, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Forget states and states' rights mix everybody up. Right. Yeah. Um and so that idea, right, of the the I- interesting aspects of going right from um you know, when people are asked where they're from in the US, you usually cite your city or your state. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, but possibly even your city. Right? It's this sort of interesting thing. <laughs> right. mm mm-hmm. Um where we, right, how we view our regions, right? Sports teams, of course, belong to cities, so right? we have these sort of yeah. allegiances, these regional allegiances. Um, but there's also the reminder, right, that maps, um, there are ways in which maps can show us things that we may not have looked for, right? So famously, the Marshall Islands, right, had navigators who created what are known as sort of as stick charts that um, any everyone sort of created their own, right? And the point was to study it before you went out on the ocean. <laughs> and then there'd be groups of boats, and one of them would have the navigator. And the maps that the navigator had created and learned showed the swells of the ocean, right? Because I islands swells, swell. And so and you can tell by sort of lying on the bottom of the boat, There's specifically supportive of, sort of, land land of land swells. swells. So we have these all these fascinating ways of mapping knowledge, right? But you have to be able to read them and you have to recognize what they say and what they don't say, right? They all skew knowledge mm-hmm. in a certain way, the same way a mercator projection does, right? Yeah. Because they're focused on one specific thing that they're showing
0: you. Mm-hmm. Um, I did want to yeah. mention... Everything is created for a particular purpose. Yes. You come across a globe and you don't really think about it as being anything other than like an object of information or entertainment, but like everything is created with a purpose, a use in mind, and like an agenda, to be honest. Like, I'm not sure I would always like agenda feels like a loaded term, but but that's 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 kind of what it is.
1: Right? Yeah. Um you know, maps of the US that sort of showed more belonging to the US government than did at the time. (laughs) There's some early maps of the colonies that sort of show Virginia drone like drawn virginia and the carolinas right drawn like all the way out past the appalachian mountains Ooh. and stuff right <laughs> just on this sort of off sense or chance right that all that land would one day belong <laughs> we're to gonna them. get yes. there yeah um, optimism yes and of course now that you know those are other states right um but i did want to mention real fast we mentioned yinke Shanibara in a previous episode um, and mm-hmm. he recently did a project surrounding the Hereford world map or Mappa Mundi, right? Um, that was created around 1300 and it hangs in Hereford Cathedral in England. And it is, it is a world map, right? A map of sort of the known world at the time. And it has all of these creatures on it, right? It was assumed all these, what we would now say, mythical or legendary creatures, right? Like giants and stuff like that, um, lived in parts of the world that were unknown essentially right um and so there was also a sense of course of you know there being other races of people and i don't mean race in our modern term i mean race really right in the sense of like the neanderthals of course mm-hmm. you know the, the, the medieval people creating this map had no idea that neanderthals right or astralopithecae or things like you know not that they had existed but yeah but that was sort of the idea, right? That somewhere that these types of peoples did exist. So they're drawn on mm-hmm. this map. Um, and Shani Bard did this sort of amazing project around it to sort of comment on the ways in which um, Europeans, and not just Europeans, of course, um, assumed that kind of in the areas of the world they didn't know, there were probably monsters, right? And eventually you yes. sort of, you know, decide that there don't seem to be monsters, but maybe other races of people are other races, which is to say that they're not people Mm -hmm. like you, that there's something else. Um, And so you draw these sort of weird, monstrous figures. Um, And so his project, right, he's a British Nigerian artist with a disability. um, And so he sort of used these figures in this art project to comment on them and the way that they become part of this map, right? The way the world sort of was seen at the time. Um, And he... Instead of sort of having um, professional artists help him, um, he asked for community groups to be involved. So they found a few different community cool. groups, um, including some, maybe one group was art students or it, it included art students, high school age students. Um, so all these community groups who got together and sort of created the the works, right, on his design um, or helped create them on his design and so that's right. So it was also this community building project. So the idea of the world map, it brings people together, because it shows you sort of the mm-hmm. whole world is one. But at the same time, then there are these sort of outside figures. Um, but something else mm-hmm. that's sort of interesting, he says that a lot of the figures really don't f- f- seem to feel othered, which is to say the figures themselves, <laughs> even though we might look at them and say, ah, they have been othered, right? They have been excluded. They have been yeah. made monstrous they seem pretty happy. They're like doing their thing. Hmm. Right. So they're, they're not sort of aware necessarily that they're being looked at in this way. So the project is also kind of about that, right. It sort of celebrates them while also highlighting them, right. And the way they were seen. Um, So it's this sort of fascinating thing. It's also though, just to say about this medieval map, we have talked around this a lot and I figured we'd end here. It's what is known, I think as a T and O map. (laughs) Um, So Mm -hmm. it's an O, it's a circular map Right? And around the outside is ocean. They knew the world was round. This originally comes from probably Isidore of Seville, um, who's in the seventh century. He lives like 560 to 636 or something. He's the Archbishop of Seville. Um, then this was his idea of the world, but he probably also knew the world was round. Most people did. I mean, every, you know, since the Greeks. So before the year zero, I mean, people have known the world was a globe, was a sphere.
0: What I was told is that if you live by the sea, and you watch ships sailing out to right. sea, it's relatively easy to deduce that the world is curved round because the ship will disappear gradually, sort of sinking yes. rather than just fading into the distance.
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, so, and there are a lot of medieval people who did the studies, right? People figured out sort of the curvature of the Earth. Um, and they were usually off by a bit. Sometimes not by as much as you'd think. I mean, um, so I think the going theory that most people have heard is like people were off by like a third or something, Uh, but it tended to be more like 17 or 18%. (laughs) Um, But anyway, so he... so But they did think that most of the world was ocean, right? They didn't know necessarily that the Americas were there. (laughs) So they thought all of that was ocean, right? So that half the globe was ocean and the other half was land. And that the land that existed within this ocean, so you see ocean around the outside... Um, was divided essentially by a T. So um the half of the circle, the upper half of the circle above the top of the T is Asia. Okay. And then below the T, which of course also is a cross, right? So there's something very symbolic about this. Mm-hmm. To the right of the cross and to the left of the cross are the two other land masses. And if we're being um, truly symbolic... Europe tends to be on the right, right? Because that's the saved side, and Africa on the left. Oh. Um, it's not clear that that is always the point. And sometimes the circle is turned in such a way that it's more like the T is on its side. So Asia's maybe on the left. Yeah. <laughs> and I Africa's think on the, the top and Europe's on I the I think bottom.
0: the Hereford Mapa Mundi has Europe on the left, yeah. the bottom left. Yeah. So. Yeah.
1: But that would be the right, that, if Jesus is sitting at the top of the cross, right, that's the right side, that's the same side. It might be our left, <laughs> but it's his right, yeah.
0: Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. yeah, that makes yeah. sense.
1: Um, but like I said, it's not clear that that's always the. But again, right? These are subtle things that sort of seep into your consciousness, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, and then Africa on the on our right, but it would be on Jesus's left in that case. Jesus is sometimes in these maps and sometimes not. It depends. He, but he is usually sort of sitting near the top. He's frequently holding an orb like a king would be holding, mm-hmm. and that of course. So is Jerusalem kind gold? of in the
0: middle of the of the cross? Yes. Part? So the T. Um,
1: the top of it is the Mediterranean, of course, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and then we get um, the Nile. And the Don are the two rivers, yeah. generally. That can shift a little okay. bit. Um, but there's sort of right the Mediterranean, its name, right? It's this between land, right? It's the sea that, okay, that parts these continents, yeah. right? It basically part it parts Europe and Asia. Right It actually, of course, parts Europe and Africa, really, from our perspective today. <laughs> um, however, um, they thought it parted wow. all of them, right? They thought that Asia was sort of its own mm-hmm. thing, and then Europe and Africa were separated by. Um, but anyhow, so this is sort of the sense of the world. Um, and Isidore does not assign races, but later maps do. So each continent mm-hmm. is connected to a son of Noah, right? The repopulation of the earth, right? Which of his... Oh. So speaking of where are you from? Where are you descended? Well, each of his kids theoretically repopulates one of the continents. So Asia is Shem. <laughs> Europe is Japheth. And Africa is famously Ham, right? And mm-hmm. this is generally where um, modern racism can in a lot of ways be traced back to to that. Modern racism towards Africa specifically can be a lot of it traced back to Ham and the view of Ham, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And so this sort of sense, right? Um, It's interesting because Isidore did this. This is not the way the ancient Greeks had divided the world. Aristotle divided the world Mm -hmm. the way we divide it today, basically. He wasn't the first to do it, but he sort of really popularized it. And that is into... What today basically are, um, latitude and longitude, essentially. He didn't, um, he didn't do that. That came later. But like the temperate zones, right? Temperate climate, the Arctic zones. He did that. He mm-hmm. sort of saw the equator. He thought was actually probably so hot it was unlivable. Again, this wasn't just Aristotle, but he popularized it. Um, and then it sort of got more yeah. temperate and then really cold at the ends, right? And we still have those zones. Marinus of Tyre, I think is, he's Phoenician or he could have been Greek. And he seems to be the first person we know of who divided, officially, right, divided maps into latitude and longitude. Um, and then Ptolemy got it from him, hmm. which is how we know he did it, because Ptolemy references him a lot. Um, but nice. Marinus's work is now lost. But, ex- you know, but we have Ptolemy's. Um, but anyway, so it's not like that possibility wasn't known, right? Um, you mm-hmm. know, Marinus and Ptolemy are working like the early hundreds, or the first century after the year zero. But that is not what Isidore of Seville followed, and his version becomes really sort of the popular European version in the Middle Ages. Um, So the fact that we still think of these separate continents in some ways goes back to him. Yeah. Right? There's no obvious reason for Europe and Asia.
0: And Asia to be different. (laughs) Right. Yes. Um, The definition of a continent as... Two land masses divided by an ocean. Yeah. Kind of falls apart right there. It does. Um, it does do that. Yes. Also, where's Russia? <laughs> I mean, arguably, up until Teddy Roosevelt, the Americas were mm-hmm. kind of connected. Until the Panama Canal. Um, yes. Until, you know. Yep. Panama Canal cut them in half. Yeah. So, No, absolutely. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's a very weird question. Um, but
1: yes, we can come back to some of this next time. But this is sort of, right, that sense of, um... Okay. The the way in which we see things, we, that we frequently take it as very factual. Um, we're like, oh, this is based on science. Maps are based on science. It is and isn't true. They are, but frequently they're also not. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, ascribing these continents. Yeah. If you look beyond that, even maps that are absolutely based on science, like charts of the stars, right? Um... There is nonetheless a degree yeah. to which it's showing you things from a specific perspective for a specific type of knowledge, right? And if you take them for anything beyond that, mm-hmm. your your knowledge is going to be skewed in some way, right? The perspective is going to be off just because it wasn't intended for that. Yeah. Right? Mercator is yeah. intended for navigation,
0: mm-hmm.
1: not for children learning where things are in relation to each other. It's actually terrible for that. <laughs> uh, that's yeah. not what it shows you, Right. <laughs>
0: Or if you still have the old map, like in my elementary oh, school that yes. said USSR on it. <laughs> I said this past. I feel like when my dad was a kid, they maybe had books that just yep. said, like, darkest Africa, um, in, yes. in that particular I part of the map.
1: said in class, um, um I was like, at, this was a semester or whatever, you know, a few months ago, and I was like, Tom Stopper was from Czechoslovakia. And then I was like, "Which doesn't exist anymore." <laughs> and I yeah. and what I also wanted to say but didn't was, I was alive when it existed, but I'm sure none of them were, right? <laughs> none of my students were alive mm-hmm. when Czechoslovakia yeah. stopped existing, which is fascinating, mm-hmm. and certainly not when the USSR stopped existing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh God. Yep.
1: But speaking of boundaries
0: and change, that
1: is a big one. Yeah, East and West Germany. Mm
0: -hmm. So much. Mm -hmm. Yeah that that happened. That happened when my mom was driving us back from Chicago and we were stuck in traffic on I ninety, and she's trying to explain to, you know, how old was I? Probably like six. Trying to explain why she's upset about (laughs) the Berlin Wall falling down. Someone who cannot conceptualize right. an, uh, another country, let alone, uh, uh, you know, right. a city with a wall yep. in the middle of it. Can you imagine? Yeah. So.
1: That's incredible. I mean, 89 was a kind of crazy year.
0: Crazy stuff.
1: In many ways, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so we might pick up here next mm-hmm. time, yes. And
0: finish up our. Yeah, I think we gotta cut it off because we've gone way over. So. Yeah, uh, I'm not going to do the full announcements because it would take a really long time, but feel free to follow us on Facebook or check out our website at askamedievalist.com. We have a comment form, and uh, we're hoping after we get done with this series of episodes to do a listener response um, episode. So please send us your questions, and uh, I think that's it. So until next time, you know, stay safe, everybody. And, uh, viva la revolution. Wash your hands. Awesome. And keep it medieval. <laughs> Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni, Veni, Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons attributional non-commercial license version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at